Hi, my name is Dominique, and together with my team, we produce the content for our weekly Swisspreneur episodes. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you're not uh, willing to take risks, calculated risks, I think then, then you shouldn't venture into entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Doris, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me. You are a successful founder, a board member, and also investor in startups. And today we're going to talk about your entrepreneurial story. Let's start with your personal background. You earned a degree in translations, and this is not the typical background to then later become an entrepreneur. So I'm curious to learn more about in what way that this educational background of studying translations has actually helped you to become an entrepreneur. Well, since in the end I became an entrepreneur in in my um, core competence field, translations, it's not so, I think it's not so um, exotic because at least it was, it was my core business where I could uh, start as an entrepreneur. And you later also uh, earned an executive MBA from the University of St. Gallen. In what way has that also complemented your, your skill set and why did you decide to take an MBA to further educate yourself? Yeah, I think that was, that was a crucial point because I think the executive MBA, that really gave me kind of a framework of how to approach uh, strategic, uh, strategic uh, problem solving on how to approach uh, finances, marketing, IT, you name it. You know, it goes across technology, right. it goes across, across the board. I think without this, it would pro- probably have been, have, uh, would probably have been hard to, uh, to start as an entrepreneur and start as, as a CEO in, in the end. Makes sense. So let's go back to the early days. You were the head of language services at the SBV, uh, the former UBS sort of before they merged together. Mm-hmm. And, you sort of said in an interview that you turned the translation department into a profit center, something that is usually costing money for the companies, but you turn it into a profit center. How did you do that? Because that sounds like an entrepreneurial endeavor itself. (laughs) Well, actually, I joined Swiss Bank Corporation uh, because they were planning to outsource their in-house translation services. Mm -hmm. And beforehand, I was uh, starting up my own company as a language technology um, consultant. And they wanted to uh, also to build up a translation section. And when I heard that Swiss Bank Corporation is, is thinking about outsourcing their uh, department, so I got in touch with, uh, with, with the head of the corporate center and CFO. And uh, so we decided the bank was not ready yet for outsourcing in uh, 95. Mm-hmm. But they asked me whether I wouldn't be willing to prepare to join the bank and prepare the team for for the outsourcing. So that's why I was suggested why don't we uh, start with a, with a profit center, and then we can start offering our services on the market in uh, on on the market and see how you know the services and the pricing and everything works. So just to get that straight, you were doing the internal translations, but you also offered your translation yes. services to other companies yes. outside of the bank. Yes, that sounds very special because that's like not what you would expect, right? So why was that a strategic decision? Why was that important? I think it was important for our internal team and for myself as well to see whether the services can be offered in the market and whether there is a market for offering services. Like, Of course, it's a huge translation market, sure. which is uh, which is very, very ato- a- atomized. And uh, but this gave us the, uh, the framework so that we uh, framework so that we could test uh, our services on the market and see whether how clients react. Got it. And then you actually made more money in the end than you cost the bank. So you really were, were a profit center. 
I think that's just a great story per se to, to have that, that set up. And then you basically focused on business process outsourcing. I think mm -hmm. the BPO was sort of the keyword in these days. Yeah. Why was this an uprising trend and sort of how were we able to capitalize on that? Well, actually, you know, we basically just copied the IT sector because they were started at, at, during that time, banks were starting to outsource their in-house uh, IT departments mm -hmm. to India, to wherever. And I, because it was non-core, I thought, well, by the way, translation service is non-core either. Why don't we outsource this? And that's probably, well, I mean, Peter Woofley, my former boss, he has thought about this already beforehand, that it's non-core, so we source it out. <laughs> and I think it's, it's, it's great. It's, it's a great, it's a great business model because on the one hand, it's, I always say that the business process outsourcing for non-core services is kind of a triple win situation. On the one hand, the client that outsources its in-house department, um, uh, has variable cost instead of fixed cost. And they gain access to a much larger uh, skill pool. The translator itself or the, the non-core person itself, um, gets is transferred to a company where this service is core mm -hmm. and they have huge uh, talent development opportunities. I mean, I had some of the younger talents, they became uh, uh, managing directors of the whole region of Asia and they started off as junior translators. You would, you would never be able to do that within a bank or within another com other company as uh, uh, with the translation services. And the third, third winner was, uh, we as a, was us as a, as a service provider. To make a business. And I was so surprised that in Europe and in the US, nobody actually or hardly ever, uh, hardly anybody copied us except for the company in, um, in uh, Canada, which we acquired later on. And they were outsourced as well. They were the, the, the kid of an outsourcing uh, initiative as well. And so, and so that's, that's how we grew. And, and they offered that service in Canada. Uh, but apart from that, I've never heard it. Got it. So you really specialized. And I think that also underlines your core competencies, as you said in the beginning. One thing that is also uh, interesting for me is before you actually then, you know, created the spin-off, so to say, um, you were really, you know, an entrepreneur itself in, in, a, in a large corporate. How did that work? How were you able to, you know, to make your own decisions and to sort of be an entrepreneur within the corporate structures? You know, I think the blunt answer to this is because it was, it's kind of an exotic, it's a necessary evil to have translations within, within, a, within, within a bank or within another company. And uh, people were happy, managers were happy if you, if you did, your, if, if you did your, your job properly and they didn't really care about the, how you did it. So as long as the job was done, they were, they were happy. Yeah. And then in 1997, you actually took the step and uh, founded the, the external company uh, called CLS Communication AG. You were the founder and CEO of that company. And in the beginning, it was still sort of a, a collaboration with the Swiss Banking Corporation, right? So how do you take that step, you know, from being a, an internal team to the external company that is suddenly its own business? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, what we did, of course, we did a service level agreement, a company service level agreement with both, with a... Uh, Swiss Bank Corporation and Zurich Insurance, who jumped onto the bandwagon as well. And uh, of course, uh, there was no, um, we had to do a good job, otherwise we would have, we would have lost the contract. Right. So we better, better make, make sure that, uh, that we did a good job. And of course, you have, been, you have to create your own processes, you have to create your own systems and build that whole thing up and see how does it work together with the former employer. For, for also for also for our employees, you know, they were they have been spending a uh, 10, 20 years with the bank, and then now they're outsourced in a 
in a in a in a freaky startup. So <laughs> it's kind of it, it was it was a major change for, for the culture change as well. And then when we started to um, integrate other translation services from other uh, institutions, of course we we suddenly had a number of different of, of people that go, that were coming from a different corporate culture. And that was one of, one of the, and I only realized that in hindsight, one of the most thrilling things was to create our own corporate culture over time and to make sure that this mix of different cultures really worked well. And in, in the end, uh, when we had our 15th anniversary, I just came across the, uh, the CD yesterday, uh, when we had our 15th anniversary, um, one of my uh, colleagues told me that, you know, CLS really has a strong corporate culture. And... Um, the thing was, have you ever been at the party where 150 out of 180 people were, that were present at the party were standing on the dancing floor before the first course was, was served? So that was really, I thought, okay, that's, that's also work hard and party hard. <laughs> so we, we got to talk about that in a, in a minute, because I think also there the core values play a crucial role that you defined mm -hmm. early on. So we're going to talk about that in a second. What I'm also curious to learn more about is, you know, sort of leaving the safe haven of uh, being a part of a corporate culture or a corporate organization where you have, you know, financial support, you, you, you sort of don't have the same pressure as you have with your own company. How do you deal with that? Because as you said, you have the service level agreement afterwards with the uh, CLS mm -hmm. communication AG, but then you also have more pressure that you need to handle because if you don't do a good job, the exactly. service level agreement is done, right? Yes, exactly. And, and you had to make sure that you didn't run into a loss, the company. And of course, in the beginning, we had support from, uh, we had HR support, from, from UBS. Okay. And uh, then later on, in a couple of years later, we, we hired our own, own HR manager mm -hmm. and we decoupled. And uh, for, for, the, uh, for, the, um, for the accounting, of course, I had, external, I had an external provider as well. Yeah. But in the beginning, I had to do everything, except for translation, I had to do everything, <laughs> more or less everything right. in, that, in, in that shop. That's, yeah. Sounds like the real startup life. <laughs> it is a startup life. <laughs> Whatever is left over, you you got to exactly, do exactly, in including uh, buying some some coffee cups and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. And I also wonder how was the setup? You know, with UBS in the background, the supporter did they own the company or most of the companies in the beginning? Because then later we talk about what changed there. Mm -hmm. But how do you do the financial and the organizational setup with? with UBS? Yeah, in the beginning, UBS had about uh, two-thirds of the company and Zurich Insurance one-third. And we, as a management team, could uh, uh, were able to have to get some shares um, in, within our bonus program. Okay. But basically, it was not your company at the beginning. It was a joint venture with UBS yeah, exactly. and Zurich Insurance. Yeah. But then from day one, you basically strived for a management buyout that mm -hmm. you could take over the company. Why was that so important for you and the whole management team to to have that option to work towards that goal? Well, it, it, we discussed it with, uh, with with both partners, with Wispan Corporation and with UBS and, and, and with uh, Zurich Insurance, and we said, well, if this if this baby is going to fly, then we do a management buyout within a few years, and that's what we did in two thousand three. And I think that was that was a huge step forward, and I was really looking forward to it because I think you know that gets you out in freedom. <laughs> True. Yeah. That's the, the ultimate goal as an entrepreneur, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> but but I can still imagine, you know, if you do a good job and you you really build a profitable company, then UBS and Zurich, they also might have an incentive to not sell their shares because you, you created a good business and it's profitable. Mm -hmm. So how were you able to convince them or address these concerns 
and then really take over. I actually think it was just a natural step because it's it's an encore business. They outsourced it. They mm-hmm. let it alive for a while and see well how it works. And then uh, if it works, we can we can fly to the outsourcing to the to the management buyout. Got it. And then you did that in two thousand three. Yeah. How did that happen then? Um, because you also probably need some some money to finance the buyout, right? Yeah, exactly. We had to, we we took up a loan and uh, and uh, had to. Um, uh, and had to pay it back within a certain period of, of time. Okay. Yeah. And and, how... the, and a certain number of shares we had already, but that was a man, what was sure. minority share. And how did that make you feel? Because there you also go into another risk, basically. You know, if if you take out a loan, the plan might not work out. Yeah. You end up with having uh, still to pay back the loan, but no real assets left. I mean, that's the life of an entrepreneur. <laughs> if you're not uh, willing to take risks, calculated risks. I think then, then you shouldn't venture into entrepreneurship. I think that's, that's, uh, in, in hindsight, in the beginning, I didn't think about this, but in hindsight, I think, uh, yeah, you have to be willing to take certain risks. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And what helped you to really, you know, calibrate that risk and, and be confident enough that, okay, that's the right way uh, to go? I was convinced that our business model will fly. Why? Because it was the true trend that the, uh, that uh, it was a non-core service for for any company, so I didn't see the reason why not. You know, once one or two major companies start this process, then others will follow. Okay. But of course, we had to fight for every single every single agreement with new clients. I mean, it's it's not it wasn't an easy job, but uh, in the end, we managed to convince companies like Swisscom, Raiffeisen, and Sunrise mm-hmm. uh, to outsource. And others were to follow banks and so on and so forth. So in, in the end, it was really our core business was, was business process outsourcing in the end. Yeah. And you, 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 you and, and we developed a process on how to integrate those people. Yeah. To give you an example, for instance, when we had, um, we did one, one out, business process outsourcing in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. And uh, we always advised the client, if you communicate this to the team, please make sure that at the same day, we can come in and, and uh, present our company and what does it mean to work with CLS communication. Oh. And then we did that as well in, in Denmark with our ma- managing director in Denmark. And of course, we showed them, you know, we have now several places outside and then you can work, you can also work in New York or Singapore or wherever, uh, or you go, or you can ex- extend your vacation and it's, uh, and work in one of our offices and it's, it's counted as, 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 as work, as, uh, as working hours. Mm-hmm. And then the CEO came back afterwards and said, I hope, some people will stay in Denmark because they were talking about New York and everything. But you, know, you have to bring in the, the, the values you have, the, the, the value set you have within a company, what it means to work with us. And they suddenly thought, okay, those guys are not that strange. So you basically, this is actually a huge obstacle, right? That you faced a huge challenge, integrating yeah. the, the external teams mm-hmm. that are getting outsourced and making them part of your culture and your company. And you basically did that with the strong company culture that you already mm-hmm. mentioned. And I think at the core of this is are your, your core values that you really defined early on. Can you talk a bit more about how you found your core values and what they were? Well, actually, we did a, we did a, we defined our values together with our team at some stage, because the more you grow, you know, at some stage you have to define it because in the beginning, you know, it's kind of natural and you know each other. And, and as, if you start to grow, you have to define them. And, uh, we had, uh, we had, we, I mean, you know, certain values that were really um, crucial to us, like integrity, um, fairness, and openness, open, frank, uh, com- uh, transparent communication, yeah. but also the attitude of clients first. 
I mean, I, per, I personally hammered that into the company. Honestly, that was one of my because you know, if if you have happy clients and you do your business more or less right, you don't have to worry that much about your figures. Right, they will come on their own. <laughs> yeah. <be> good. <laughs> yeah. We still had tough times, you know, during the financial crisis and stuff like that. Of course, then, then it's tough anywhere, everywhere. But, uh, but I mean, if, if, if you take care of your clients and, and you make sure that the, it's a service oriented company that's really response, responsive and uh, takes care of what needs to be done, I think that works. There's also an interview that you sent me. And there, I think one of your former coworkers said that you really walk the talk because you visited so many clients that they really felt client first, that's an important value for our company and you lead by example. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a really sort of good underlying story to to prove your point. Yes, I think that is important. I heard from a, from a CEO some time ago from, from a large company and said, if your CEO doesn't take care of clients, then you really have to worry about the company. Yeah. And I think that's so true. Absolutely. I fully believe that. <laughs> And one of my, yeah, one of our, um, our, one of our regional heads said, well, Doris, you know, in our organization, everybody knows that clients are important. I said, you sure? I said, yes. And, and he said, told me, you know why? Because whenever you are in Asia, you're coming with us to visit clients all day. You're not micromanaging in the office. So even the in-house translator knows that clients are important. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, you have to walk the talk. Sure. And then that's probably how you then build a, a strong and good culture, right? Mm -hmm. Did you do anything besides that? I mean, of course, that's an important part, a crucial part to, to walk the talk and to, to lead by example. But did you do anything else to communicate and really re-emphasize the, the, the corporate, the cultural values that you had? Did you print them out or did you, whenever you had a presentation or a memo that you sent out to your employees, did you re-emphasize and re-communicate your values all over uh, again? Or how did I you do that? I probably could have done more of that. Okay. <laughs> but, but we communicated reg regularly. And of course, uh, as, as the company grows and you're in different locations, different countries, different uh, cultural setups, of course, you have to communicate it uh, now and then again. But it's also, in, if, if there's, it's, it's kind of, you know, corporate culture is kind of a DNA of, of, of a company. And uh, whenever I entered a CLS office, no matter where it was, I thought, that has a CLS touch. And if that was missing, then something was wrong. <laughs> Did that ever happen? Did you ever feel that something was missing when you entered an office abroad? Well, it was probably just in the beginning when we did some acquisitions where people came from totally different cult uh, different corporate cultural setups, then of course they have to get accustomed to it. But we were not the type of company that uh, that uh, was kind of, you know, acquiring company and making them feel that they, that, uh, that the team has been acquired. So I, I told our team, it is totally forbidden to talk about the acquisition in our company. We're talking about teaming up. And, you know, that gives a different sense of, of, uh, of being included, of being inclusive. And we also made sure that when, for instance, when we... Uh, uh, when we acquired the um, the Canadian company, we had so-called knowledge exchange sessions where we could see, well, what, how do they solve th these pro processes? How do we solve them? And then we took the best of both companies. Nice. So that really ma made you stronger in the end because you took the best of both worlds, basically. Okay. I can also imagine that by doing these acquisitions and, and you know having different cultures from all over the world coming together, that at a certain point, you also have people or even whole teams that don't really fit to the culture that you want to have. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that? 
Yeah, then you either, either you can convince them or then you it's better for both parties to separate. Yeah. What was the more likely scenario or the more often scenario? We hardly ever had to uh, let people go because because yeah. of cultural issues. I, want, I once had, a, had an issue with, with one team where we wanted to, well, that was a never-ending story, introducing machine translation in a translation market. You, know. <laughs> you really have to convince people. And then I said, well, Doris, we don't want to use that. It, I took a small team. And, uh, and then uh, are, you, are you aware of the fact that uh, you're going to cannibalize, first of all, you're going to cannibalize our business mm -hmm. by introducing machine translation? Second, uh, I told, they told me, uh, are you aware of the fact that some of us will give notice? And then I said, you know, I cannot jeopardize 600 jobs because five people don't want to work with, with a certain tool. Right. And then we had, in fact, we had about two or three people that left. Okay. And that was okay. I mean, you know, you have to state that you have to be tough in that, in that as well, because otherwise, you know, it's not going to work. That's exactly, I think, the trade-off that you often have to do as an entrepreneur. You need to make sure that you make the best decision for the company, mm -hmm. because otherwise, if there's no company, there are no jobs that you yeah. can give, right? And if there are some people that don't agree with that decision or see it differently, fair point, but then it's just not a good fit, right? Yeah. You still have to make sure that the company's alive and not exactly. that you do the best <laughs> for the employees, but then there's no company left. You try to leverage it and you try to harmonize it, but it's not sure. always possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, culture and also values, they play an important role uh, also for getting investors on board. In 2009, mm -hmm. you basically collaborated or accepted the investment of a private equity firm to then also empower your uh, build and grow strategy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you talk a bit more about how you selected and made the decision to actually get an investor on board instead of just growing on your own with your operational cash flow? Okay. Well, what we did when we did the management payout, I was advised to um, to define the fundamental values right up front with the management team mm -hmm. so that you don't have discussions later on. And then we decide, we, we said, well, do we want, to, and one of the questions was, uh, do we want to take a financial investor on board? And then uh, I told my, told my management team, I said, listen, the fundamental question we have to answer is, do we want to have a big piece of a small cake or a smaller piece of, of a bigger cake? Then everybody said, okay, we take the big cake, but no sharks. <laughs> we said we need, to, we need to have a reliable partner, but we don't want to have an investor that has a shark attitude. Yeah. And I, th I think that's important because you have, to, you have to be able to get the feeling that you can trust this partner. And that is not just, it's not just, go. of course, they have to make money. They have to get the IRR for the exit and stuff like that. But uh, you have to make sure that they can work together because you're staying together for, we stayed with them for five years. Yeah. But Almost that's not that easy to decide. You know, you haven't worked together. Of course, you have interactions, you have discussions and meetings, but you haven't actively worked together. So how do you find out if you can really trust them? <laughs> that's you find out in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, at, at the end of the day, I think sometimes you have to you have to um, trust your gut feeling as well. If you see, well, those are reasonable pe pe people with a, with a, with a solid uh, foundation, and they have done other deals with other companies. We did a strategy workshop with them, and uh, so introduced them to the company and sh showed them our strategy and things like that. And that went, that went went really well. Okay. You also, but you also have to be aware of the fact that. In the beginning, it's honeymoon. 
And then as time goes along, especially towards the exit scenario, when, you, when, you're, when you're close to the exit, then the uh, interests of both parties might not be aligned anymore. Because the entrepreneur wants to invest long term, whereas the, uh, whereas the uh, private equity firm has to get out with a very high IRR. Sure. So, is there anything, and that is difficult. <laughs> is there anything that you can do to really try to get on the same incentivization? path basically that you have the same incentives and really work together it's it's it's, pr it's probably it probably dep depends on the business okay probably depends on the business we want to invest more into, into, into technology and maybe take one or two markets more in, in, into our accounts mm -hmm. and um, but you know it's, it's always a trade-off if, if you're growing by yourself then you lack financial means to grow fast if you're teaming up with a partner, then of course you have to deal with issues of long-term, short-term investments. And as you said, your your board, your management team basically made the decision of getting a smaller piece from a, a large pie, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. In your case, the pie was probably about $40 billion uh, in, in market size internationally for translations. That's just crazy if you think about <laughs> it. So you really decided to, you know, to go international to make it big. What helped you? What was like the the appeal to make the decision of going international and getting uh, after going after the the larger pine instead of the smaller mm -hmm. pine staying in Switzerland? Honestly, I found it thrilling to internationalize a company, and still nowadays, internationalization is still still one of my so called hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> and at some stage, when we were buying a fair fair number of of of, uh, of companies, people said, "Well, Doris, are you?" Are you buying another company again? I said, well, you know, other people buy shoes. I'm buying, I, I like buying companies. But okay. it's, it's, it's really true. I mean, you know, I mean, part of it is kind of paid ongoing, paid ongoing education because mm -hmm. I learned so much with the internationalization and with uh, digging into other totally different cultures like, like, like Asia. I, I think I, I learned a lot and I was paid for it. <laughs> that sounds like the perfect deal. <laughs> It's tough. It's tough as well. Of course, it's a lot of work, but I mean, you know. So yeah, let's talk about that growth that you actually pulled off and you grew organically, obviously, but also mm -hmm. through acquisitions. You acquired companies in Canada, as you already mentioned, also in Denmark, in Germany, and also in the UK. Mm -hmm. How did you make that happen? I mean, this is a, a huge amount of work and also I can imagine pretty difficult to find the right targets from the outside and making the right bets and decisions which companies to acquire. Yeah. Well, usually, you know, it, a lot of it happens, a lot of it happens through, through personal relationships because you know, you know, certain companies in certain markets because you see each other at conferences and things like that. So the company we acquired in the UK, they had uh, one office in, 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 in Spain and the other one in France. So basically we had, we could tap into three markets and there the owners, uh, it was 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 owned by one person, and the only first uh, we, we, had, we had initial talks, and I said, "Well, look, that's that's about the framework. That's how we would consider it." And I was really making sure he could always pull out and uh, without without losing uh, face. And when he said, "Well, doors, I'm not ready yet," I said, "Well, this doors are open. I fully understand, fully respect it. Doors are open." And two years later, he came back. But yeah, this really shows the importance of the personal relationships. Yeah. That I think that's a great anecdote. Yeah. And the same with, with the Scandinavian company there. They knew um, our managing director in, 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 in Copenhagen very well. Mm -hmm. And they, they were 
attending the same conferences and things like that. And then when the, those were four partners and when they moved towards retirement, of course, they had to find a solution. And how did you manage the, the cash flow during all these acquisitions? I know that you, had, you did have the investor from the private equity world, mm -hmm. but still, I mean, these are probably quite some significant investments that you had to make there. How do you manage all the, the cash flow uh, challenge? I had a great CFO manage that. <laughs> <laughs> I was the foreign minister, he was the interim Then it worked out. Then yeah. it worked out, yeah. Sounds like a, a good role split then. We had a good role split. I think in, in hindsight, I think, you know, you never can grow a company as an entrepreneur by yourself. You need a great team for that. And I truly treasure our team. They really did a great job. And, you know, it's it's not that you're, we're talking about translation. You know, it's necessary evil. But um, in, in hindsight, you have to be able to manage chaos because you never knew Monday morning was coming in during the day, let, let alone Friday evening when, when, it's really hammer, when it was really hammering because everybody wants to get everything done uh, the same day. And then also you had these emergency cases for with uh, press releases to be out within two hours and stuff like that. So you really have to have an organized chaos. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not going to work. And for that, you need a great team, flexible, great team. True. How, what would you say are like the, you know, the, the key players that you needed to make everything work? So CFO is one part, but mm -hmm. there were also many other people involved. So what were like the key roles that you had to, to have in, yeah. at, at, at your company to make it work? But on, on the one hand, key is to have excellent translators and copywriters. Honestly, that is without that, you're not going to survive. That's your core. Yeah, exactly. Then project management. The, the, those were the people that that, uh, that uh, were distributing the work. Part mm -hmm. of it could be distributed automatically in the end, and part of it had to be uh, assigned. And then you need a technology department because you know we industrialized everything, we automated everything to the largest extent. So we need a technology, language technology department, and technology department, and uh, and then also operations. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had one person in the, uh, the person, this our CEO, he was really thinking and dreaming in processes, <laughs> and there was not a process that was not organized properly. <laughs> Again, probably the the right person, in the right team. Yeah, then exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised that you didn't mention sales or marketing. Um, well, that of course. I mean, that's that's number. That's the, apart from translation, sales, sales, and marketing is is what was less important, but but sales. And for us, sales is in our business. It's kind of it's a mixture between um, building trust with the client, mm -hmm. um, selling, and consulting. Yeah. It's kind of this this kind of for, for as with any professional service. It's kind of this this thing, right. yeah. Now, of course, I mean, say it's it's for every business. That's like the oxygen, right? Yeah, the, exactly. the cash flow coming yeah. in. Yeah. yeah, And then another challenge that I would quickly like to highlight is the consolidation, the market that took place uh, back in the days. You were basically an active acquirer of mm -hmm. other companies, but I can imagine, you know, if there are like more and more small companies that getting acquired, so you do have a certain consolidation happening in the market, mm -hmm. and probably also from the customer side because you know it's a necessary evil, but they tend to have to save costs every year, mm -hmm. more and more costs that they need to save, that you also get into certain cost pressure. Uh, that you need to fulfill and people want to talk about the prices and get the same yeah. services for lower prices. <laughs> so how did you manage the consolidation, the, the cost pressure from the client side? That was really a tough one, I can tell you. And usually I was on, sitting at the table with the client and especially when you were talking to procurement, it, it really got tough. I mean, I learned 
best argumentation I learned when I was when I was working with procurement guys because they they just saw one that's a, that's a dollar sign, and that's it or the Swiss Swiss franc sign, and independent of quality and the requirements and complexity and stuff like that, it was just a price. So we had we had a price decrease of about I would say fifty percent within five years or something like that. Wow. And that you can you can only compensate that with having everything automated and industrialized. In the end, you know, like, like in, the, in, in the shop floor, we had all those panels with uh, quality statistics, productivity, um, customer, uh, customer satisfaction, and so on and so forth, with all, companies, all, all countries listed. And then we flagged the number one. And of course, that gave some peer pressure within the organization. <laughs> That's also, also part of the culture to a certain degree, yeah, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. You were also living through the dot-com bubble with your company. Mm -hmm. I can imagine, you know, uh, seeing the markets crash and everybody panicking and getting into crisis mode. That also had an effect on your business. What was oh, it? Oh, definitely. It was uh, because uh, be be before the, the dot-com uh, bubble, we had huge projects, you know, with e-services for banks, stuff like that. Once I had a client that uh, asked us uh, whether we could uh, translate 10,000 pages within one month. And okay. How many pages have been translated? Oh, they're working on it. Maybe not yet. And then, then we decided, and then we, we ramped up all our, our processes. We uh, set up a, a new process for large for large projects, and in the end, and then we we separate, split the whole workflow. We split that, and uh, and learned a, learned a hell of a lot. And in the beginning, my team told me, "Well, Doris, but you're not serious that we take take on this assignment." Well, if we don't do it, who does it? And then we just, but then we discussed with the client uh, how we could uh, tackle this whole thing, how we could do the processes, mm -hmm. and uh, how we could refine it. And then, you know, I, I had a, a great ex external um, IT company. I called him, called him up, and said, "Well, you know, you're getting computers that have to be bought. Just, just buy them." And uh, they developed a, a terminology tool over the weekend and things like that. <laughs> That's crazy. That was an absolutely crazy time, I can tell you. Wow. And then we did the five pages within one month. <laughs> That's impressive. Oh, 5,000 5, yeah. pages. Yeah. And then, yeah, and, and the person told me, Doris, you're not serious that, you, that, 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 that we can do this. Uh, about a month later, another, another band came along and said, well, could you do 1,000 pages within, within one month? And then the terminology person said, well, no problem, we've done 5,000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if I had come up with 1,000 first, yeah. you know... The, and then it was like, been there, done that, no problem at exactly, all. Exactly, got the yeah. t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but then, yeah, the, the dot-com bubble, I, I'm sure that this also had an effect, uh, probably a negative one on your oh, business. Yeah. So how did you live through that time? That was the time when I first thought, well, we might run into a loss, but we did not. Okay. We're lucky. I mean, what we then learned afterwards, that was, but, uh, but that was after 2005. What we then did, we, we flipped our, our business model. And in the beginning, we did two, thir two thirds of the volume with in-house translators and we outsourced one third. And we changed that to, in the end, we did about 20 or 30% in-house for the real critical and demanding stuff. Mm -hmm. And the rest we outsourced. That's to, how. To freelancers? Or? To freelance. That's how we built up a base of uh, 5,000 freelancers worldwide. That's like another core component of your successful setup, I guess. You always had to, you always had to adapt. And then, of course, 
2009 to 10, we had financial crisis. That, that, and that was, that was the toughest one, honestly. That was the toughest one. There we had to downsize. And that's, I think that for me as an entrepreneur, that's the toughest part in, in, in your business life when you have to let go good people. That is. Yeah, you hired them in the first place and you think that you made a really good decision and then it just hurts if you have to let them go. Is there any, you know, tip how, how to deal with that stress and these feelings that, you know, it's, it's a horrible situation, but what can you do to, to get out there as an entrepreneur and survive that? Yeah, so you still have to, to save the company and uh, you have to make sure that the rest of the team stays on board. I think that is, and that takes a lot of discussion and, and, uh, yeah, and, 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 and showing your feelings as well, because that, that was, that was, that was not, that was not easy. That was the toughest one. What did he say to the people remaining at the company? Because if some people have to, to leave, um, no matter if it's, you know, it's not personal, it's because of the, of the budget that is not coming in, less, uh, orders and so on. How do you make sure that the, you know, the morale and the motivation is not suffering too much from the people still staying? It there? is suffering in the beginning, but it eases. Of over time. Okay. Okay. What did you do to to help to to develop the motivation and get it well, back on top? We we tried that as a whole management team. We just tried to be open for discussions and 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 questions they had, and we were very transparent. And also our HR department was really great. They handled it extremely well. It was very professional. So you know, with a great team, you can go very very far. That is, and I could never have built the company all by myself. That's that's that would have been an illusion. It's basically open and, and, and transparent communication mm-hmm. and also being available for questions and yeah. uh, personal talks, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's also quickly look at, you know, you grow super fast with CLS communication, but you also have competition from all over the world, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How do you handle them? Well, you fight them. <laughs> in what way? What did you do? What were the fights that you had to well, we, we, we We tried to fight them in, in, in the sense that we could uh, convince our clients that uh, it made sense to have, well, in the end, large organizations, they usually split up and they had two or three providers. In the beginning, they had one, and then the development was to have two or three. And we just tried to make the best job. Always go the extra mile and never give up. <laughs> this this sounds so simple, you know, when you say it, but I'm sure in, in practice, this is really it's a tough, lot of yeah. hard work. And it's tough. You have tough moments. Yeah, it is tough. It is tough. So I kind of, I kind of avoid that, but it's, but it's, you know, in the end, if you see the result that's going in the right direction, then of course, then it's, then you think it's worthwhile. How do you also balance that, you know, with your personal energy level and your personal life by, you know, going all in full speed and really uh, rock and rolling <laughs> in the, in the, in the, in the business world while still, you know, keeping like staying healthy and, and keeping a, a good and sharp mind yeah. and not, going completely, getting completely burned out by just yeah. doing that? I think you're probably not getting burned out because of work. I think you get, you might get burned out because you're, you're in the wrong company or you're with the wrong team or you're mopped or you, things like that. Yeah. But from work, I think, and I also hate this work-life balance as, you, as if you're not living while you're working. Right. <laughs> it's more of a life balance. Yeah, exactly. It's more of a life balance. And uh, of course, I, I always took my vacation and... When I, uh, my former husband and myself, we used to go sailing a lot. And then uh, we went to uh, seven times in about 10 years to Australia for three weeks on a sailing boat. After three weeks on a sailing boat, you're coming back and nobody managed to get me upset anymore for, for about two months. 
They never, they never managed to get to drive me crazy again for about at least two months. Why are big people running around all the time? <laughs> you totally, you totally run. You really come totally relaxed. Come back totally relaxed. So the vacation was your secret in that regard to to <laughs> stay sane and healthy, basically, and do some sports. That always helps for sure. Let's also talk about your supporters. Um, early on, we already heard UBS was a big support, and especially their management with mm-hmm. Peter Wuffli. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about how you actually you know, convinced him and, and also got the support from, from the bank to, to pull this off? Well, actually, he, was, he, want, he wanted to outsource the part. It was actually his idea, and I wanted to build one up. So we were actually a great team together. And he had to convince the bank that, uh, and I had to do it on, on my level. Yeah. Uh, he had to convince the bank that it was a good thing to outsource it, and that took a while. So that's why he said, "Well, it might take might take some time to convince." Because you know, I mean, and I fully understand the bank because you know they have so highly mission critical confidential information. If something leaks out, they have a huge reputation risk for that, sure. and uh, that's in the end why we even decided to have. A lease, li- a lease line into UBS at that time. So, and uh, and no um, customer-sensitive documents um, could be transferred and things like that. And they all and all our clients, they, they, they told us, well, this type of document can only be translated in-house and within Switzerland. So we were not even able to transfer it to the US or to Singapore or to somewhere else mm-hmm. or to our in-house team. But we had very strict confidential room um, uh, rules and regulations from the banks, but also from the telecom companies. We had one telecom company said, well, the, the translators working for their competitor is not allowed to work for them. So we had to separate the systems. <laughs> Makes sense. So you took the, the necessary measures to, yeah. to adapt to that. Yeah. And of course, it takes a lot of discussions. An outsourcing process is not easy. It takes a lot of discussions, but it's better if you solve it uh, up front mm-hmm. than in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important learning that uh, many entrepreneurs try to, yeah, we, we solve we'll that We'll fix it later on. Yeah. yeah, it will just probably come back two or three times as big as a, of a yeah. problem as yeah. it is in the, in, on the yeah. first time. And, you know, our company was really accustomed to work with, uh, to work with, con- to work in, in, in the confidentiality field. I mean, we even had uh, translators going on the client's premises and working in-house. So we set up lands and stuff like that, so we lands and stuff like that in-house. And then the computers went into the um, the safe, and, and, and then they came the next morning. Or, yeah. <laughs> or in Canada, we were working for the uh, Canadian government of defense. There we had a separate separate room mm-hmm. with separate entrance code, and the official came and took the, uh, the even the computers with them again. Yeah, that's uh, different times. <laughs> and another big supporter we already heard was the private equity firm uh, Zurmont Madison mm-hmm. that uh, invested in you. Of course, they gave you money and they also, as we heard, uh, did the strategy workshop with you. But how was the collaboration? How did they support you along the, the five years that you worked together? Okay, yeah, they, they had uh, three, three seats on our board of directors. So they were in regular contact with us. And of course, they were also at the strategy meetings and uh, supervised the figures very <laughs> crucially. <laughs> sure, yeah, they, it's their job. They have to, right? It's their job. <laughs> it's their bread, bread, bread and butter. Yeah, but... Beyond that, I mean, of course, now they have Portsea, but 
how did they specifically support you on, you know, did they also support you on the M&A part? Did they have their own team supporting mm -hmm. you on that? Or yeah. in what other aspects besides the board seat and the investment did they support you to to build a successful company? Well, actually, they they helped us, of course, when we, when we had dealing there, they helped. The first ones we did all by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And even the one in Denmark, I did by myself, despite the fact that they came on board two months Earlier, I did it together okay. with our, with our, with our CFO and the uh, and management team on site in Denmark, and um, with Canada. There we had an external one as well that was helping. There and then, but then one of the board members from Zurmont, they joined us uh, and and uh, and came came to see the uh, the Canadian market and especially the team up there. And once I took him to Asia, and I was surprised he was. Already a senior, and I thought I was surprised, but he accompanied me to every single client meeting. <laughs> so I we went from one place to the other, and uh, and and I went to see clients. Nice. Again, uh, this this client first mentality. That has to be crucial, there. <laughs> right? Then in 2013, you switched from CEO to becoming a board member yourself at the mm -hmm. company. Why did you decide to to take that step and switch your role, basically? Well, actually, I was uh, I had a, com a com combined role before group CEO and uh, delegate of the board, and then I handed over my my CEO role and uh, focused on uh, and, and became vice vice chairman. And you know, I think sixteen honestly, sixteen years as CEO is probably enough <laughs> <laughs> from from a startup to to a grown up company. So I think it was, at some stage you have to say, well, that's that's probably enough. Was there also, you know, any any personal uh, reason where you said, okay, um, I've seen it now, um, my my job is a bit more repetitive and maybe also gets a bit more boring, or were there also any other reasons behind that? Well, I, th I, th I think the, the thing is, I mean, I knew that we are moving towards the exit phase mm -hmm. with with Turmont Madison. We knew we had about, we said five, four to six years, and in 2014, then we we kicked off the, uh, we started the. Uh, the out the uh, sales process, mm -hmm. and I, th I think that was that was the right moment for me to say, well, that's that's it. And, and of course, it, it's, uh, you're right. It's to, to some extent it became routine after a while, especially after that time. I can imagine <laughs> that you've probably seen all the situations that yeah, you could exactly. have seen, right? So I need. I, need, I, w I probably would have needed another kick, uh, not another kick. To <laughs> <laughs> Let's also quickly look at the numbers uh, when you kicked off the, the sales process. You had 600 employees, a mm -hmm. network of more than 5,000 freelancers, as you already mentioned, offices in 20 locations across 10 countries. And you basically were part of the top 10 uh, translation firms worldwide with a revenue of 80 to 90 mm -hmm. uh, million dollars uh, in a year. Mm -hmm. I think these are impressive numbers. How you built that company you know, from being part of, uh, of a bank to then building a, such an international big company, I think that's super impressive. And now let's talk about your sale. You had the private equity firm on board and at a certain point in time, they also, of course, need to generate a return and, and go for an exit. So we basically faced the decision, do we get another investor on board mm -hmm. and get because they want to have their return or do we sell the whole company to a strategic partner mm -hmm. where we actually see fit? How did these discussions go? Well, actually, in the end, we decided to go with the strategic partner because we we, we had a look on the market who, who, who could be interested, and there were some private equity firms. There were, but there were also some um, strategic partners, and the one we chose in the end uh, is uh, which was which is Linebridge. 
uh, there it, the strategic fit was actually perfect because we were we, we were active in different verticals and in different markets. So uh, where they were weak, we were strong, and vice versa. And uh, so that made a lot of, made made a lot of sense uh, to to sell it to them. Of course, you know if you have an American company integrating a European one, integration problems, integration issues you have to you have to face. That 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 is fact fact of life. I can imagine because those two cultures really don't fit <laughs> don't fit together. So yeah, Linebridge then uh, took over and and bought uh, CSL Communication mm -hmm. in two thousand fifteen. You said you already kicked off the, the process of selling the company in 2014. Yeah. How did that look like? I mean, you obviously talked to, to several companies, but then yeah. what really made that decision? You said the strategic fit, but what led to that decision? Was it also the return? Because there, that was the interest of the private equity firm. Mm -hmm. But you as an entrepreneur, you also had the long-term uh, view. So how did you fit that together and found the common ground with your investor? Well, actually, actually, um, uh, our team once uh, asked, uh, told me, "Well, Doris, how can you sell, how can you sell your baby?" I said, "You know, this baby is grown up, and we have to let it go for ma for marriage. <laughs> that's that's the point now." <laughs> and uh, with with uh, um, with uh, Madison, we just looked at the both options and found that uh, found out that Linebridge is is uh, is the better fit. And uh, the CFO and myself, we went to. Um, uh, to Boston and uh, and uh, talk to the company and got the management presentations and stuff like that. And I, th I think really honestly, talking to the CEO, it really it it really looked like a, like and still nowadays I would say strategically it made made a lot of sense. The, you know, the strategic fit. This is something that you can plan for, or it can also sort of just happen organically. So did you plan for that exit and to be a strategic partner for Linebridge and a, mm -hmm. a good complementary skill that you offered there? Was that on, on purpose or was it more by accident? It that was by accident. Okay. <laughs> it was by accident. So there was no master plan behind no, that? No, no. Okay. We had, although we had, we had one other company in mind, but there we had too many common points and that would have led to duplications. Okay. Yeah. And then it's just uh, less attractive for them? Yeah because they already have these market shares. And it was less attractive for us as well, because we didn't want to let people go. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, if you've got, if you've got dual operations, so one, one of them has to go. It's true. And then how do you actually come up with the right price for the company? Well, that's that's with every negotiate, that, that's like a point of negotiation. There are certain, certain multiples that are in the market mm -hmm. for certain areas, be tech companies or professional services companies you have certain you have certain multiples on the market and then they look take the multiples uh, times EBTA and that or EBIT, that's it right and of course our listeners are very curious to learn or understand for how much you sold the company <laughs> can you comment on that yeah it because it was published it was 77 million US US dollars great <laughs> and for you on a personal level I'm sure that this also had a, a very positive impact. Um, what did that mean for you on a personal level? No comment on figures, personal figures. <laughs> Got it. But I'm sure that you were probably happy about the deal, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was a good deal. It was a fair deal. I think it was a fair deal. It can always be better, but uh, I mean, I think it was a fair deal. Yeah. Sure. It's, it's especially in view of the fact that about two weeks later, I think it was about two weeks later, uh, Swiss National Bank announced that they um, do away with the... Uh, with the um, exchange rate, you know, the minimum exchange right. rate between Swiss francs and the euro. Yeah. So it would have cost uh, Linebridge a lot more. Yeah. 
So the, it was just the, the perfect timing to. And close then we the deal. would definitely have we would definitely have had re renegotiations. Sure. Yeah. So, we'll just probably have uh, extended time. the process. <laughs> yeah. Perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, you know these are the little things that you cannot plan for. They yeah. just happen, they and just then happen. looking back, you just realize, oh, the the timing was actually right, but you couldn't really influence it too yeah. too much, right? So now you sold your baby, uh, the grown-up adult, basically. <laughs> what what happened next for you? I know that now you're today you're working uh, in your own company, Value Globe, to focus your board mandates and also investments in startups. And I just wonder, like, what did you do afterwards? Like, what was like? Okay, it's done. The the company sold. What do I do next? Yeah. Well, I founded Value Globe. Uh, in in view as, to do things we just mentioned, including helping companies to internationalize, mm -hmm. and then focusing on board mandates, and um, I think, and then we founded the Eurasia Competence, a company that where we support your, uh, Asian com uh, European companies expanding to Asia, and Asian companies expanding to Europe, and um, then of course I, I started to build up kind of my own portfolio. Realizing in the end that I'm not that good of portfolio manager because everybody that uh, was, was crying out loud <laughs> was served first. Oh, okay. <laughs> so now I've, I kind of, I have, I have a package which is, which is manageable. And the best, uh, I think the best assignment I have, uh, where this, but that's kind of a sort of a, of a hard. Uh, story is uh, SS Children's Villages, Switzerland, mm -hmm. and then also in, where I'm, uh, I, I joined them in 2014, and was able to take over chairmanship in uh, two, last year in, in June, and I'm also a member of the International Senate and being drawn into one project after the other and uh, in the leadership selection committee, and that's really that's I think that is a really rewarding um, work. It's really rewarding work where you can put in entrepreneurial aspects into it as well. You have to communicate a bit differently, but you can put the entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial spirit into uh, an NGO. And I think that's, that is something that's really intriguing. Nice. What makes it so you know, rewarding and also motivating for you? Because I think you know, it's, it's an organization with a very, very strong purpose. And it's uh, and they have they have great programs, be it the children's villages, but also the family strengthening programs, where you basically create an ecosystem in a in a uh, in, in a community because you include the community, the the authorities within the community. You have the um, loan and 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 saving uh, groups, which where it's really and after five to seven years we can exit again, mm -hmm. and they're self-sustaining. Great. And that is, I think, you know, that's that's really, that's it's it's an organization with such a strong purpose, honestly. Yeah. And of course, I'm doing this pro bono. I'm not earning anything on this, but you know, you have to give. That is something where you can give something back to society. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also think this is very impressive that you know, after five years, you can exit and the, the projects are independent and, and self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly the part where you should go with the entrepreneurial mindset, right? Mm -hmm. No matter if you're leading a company or yeah. if it's an association, a, a thing with a good cost behind it, this should be the goal. Otherwise, there's hardly a reason for, for it. And if you can really support that with your entrepreneurial mindset and bring that in, I think that's a huge gain for everyone. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, I mean, of course, I made mistakes as well. When, when I first joined them, we had a strategy meeting and I said, well, uh, what do we have to do to double our revenues within the next uh, five years? <laughs> People are looking, are you crazy? <laughs> are you crazy? I thought, okay, I'll be sure that's wrong. That is exactly wrong, not, not approximately right. And then a couple of years later, I came along, what do we have to do in order to uh, um, take care of double the number of children? 
then nobody could say anything. Right. So it's a, a question of framing it the it's right way. It's a question of framing it the right way, exactly. Right. But these are like great learning experiences it's, again, right? That, that was much, a steep learning experience uh, during, in, in that organization. And then, I got, of course, I, then I moved in 2013 when I handed over my CEO job. A colleague asked me, uh, well, Doris, you handed over your CEO job. Uh, uh, wouldn't you be willing to help us because we would need an entrepreneur with internationalization experience? And um, that was an e-health startup spin-off from, uh, from ETH. And uh, in the beginning, I didn't even know what the genome was. And then, but you know, the learning curve was really, really steep. And then I accompanied Professor Ernst Hafen uh, on his uh, visits to, cl- to potential um, um, clients or potential um, uh, financial um, investors. Mm-hmm. And there, there I really learned a lot within the whole team. And it's, it's basically, it's a, they developed a platform where you can have your health data and you as a person, as a user, you say with whom you want to share what. Maybe fitness data, you want to share them with your friends. Health right. data, you want to share them with your doctor. And you, you might also be willing to um, give some data in anonymized form to, uh, to research. And that will, in the end, will build up a huge community. And we now... Only through uh, through uh, funds from from the national from national funds, we are able to uh, develop uh, use cases. We have a number of use cases for different diseases, so it's really it's it's growing, awesome. it's growing. But it's still financing financing this uh, this startup is, is still a hassle. But mm-hmm. the, the team is really they have moved moved forward. Yeah. And I can see you are not getting bored even without the uh, <laughs> the, the baby that you built. And for me, it's also very impressive to see you really seem to expose yourself over and over again to these new steep learning curves, whether it's in business or in education purposes, mm-hmm. you always go down uh, these new learning curves and want to learn something new. I think that's a great red line that we <laughs> recognize across your story. So before we end this episode, I have one last question for you. Are there any resources like books or blogs, podcasts or tools and gadgets that you can recommend to our listeners that you use yourself? Well, I, I would, uh, I would probably, for strategy, I would probably look into the blue ocean strategy. Yeah. Why is that a, a good tip? I think that's, that's an absolutely great tip because, uh, because I think that's, that's absolutely good, great book and, 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 and framework because you'll be, you, so, you don't, you should, you shouldn't be swimming in, in the red ocean, meaning uh, fighting against competitors all the time, but you should find a niches and new ways on, on how to, and especially nowadays, you know, to flip your business model around or to, uh, to, to offer new services, which are not yet existing on the market, uh, so that you can grow your business without always swimming in this red ocean, which is kind of boring. Makes sense. So Doris, thank you so much for your time and for the great stories today. And we're already excited to welcome you back for the second episode. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into today's episode. Stay connected with the Swisspreneur community through our LinkedIn and Instagram profiles. Make sure to subscribe to our show on whatever podcast platform you're using. See you next week for a brand new episode of The Swisspreneur Show.